0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Canada on the defensive.
1: Canada's military spending is going to increase.
0: U.S. officials allegedly criticize Canada for having widespread military deficiencies and questioning this country's reliability as a military ally. Coming up, we'll get reaction to this reportedly leaked Pentagon document and speak with former Defence Minister David Pratt. Also.
2: It's a friend that he's had for his entire life. It's a family friend.
0: Trudeau's Christmas vacation to Jamaica. Was it just a trip with friends or an issue of access, influence and ethics? Our political strategists will weigh in. And.
3: We have been repeatedly ringing the alarm bells. Now. These bells are almost deafening.
0: Ottawa's environmental promises. Why is Canada failing where other countries have succeeded? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. While the aftershocks of a Washington Post article are still being felt in Ottawa, that news organization publishing a story this week on a leaked Pentagon report which allegedly says Canada has widespread military shortfalls. Allies are losing faith in this country. And the Prime Minister again allegedly saying Canada will never meet its two percent spending commitment to NATO. The Deputy Prime Minister was asked about that report today. Take a listen to Christian Freeland.
1: Canada is the sixth largest defense spender in NATO and and According to our plans, Canada's military spending is going to increase 70% between 2017 and 2026.
0: Well, with more, we're now joined by David Pratt, former Defence Minister in the Paul Martin Cabinet, who earlier this week lent his name to an open letter calling on Ottawa to invest more in military and to do more to protect Canadian sovereignty. Mr. Pratt, thank you for joining us. Good to meet you. Pleasure to be here, Michael. So I should state first and foremost that CPAC has not independently seen this uh, leaked document. This is being reported on by the Washington Post, but I'm wondering what your reaction to the report is because allegedly the leak says that American officials are frustrated by what is described as Canada's widespread deficiency when it comes to the military.
2: Well, uh, uh, first of all, I think it's important to point out that this is not uh, a new event by mm-hmm. any by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Canada, along with quite a few other countries, took a peace dividend right after the Cold War, so we cut back on our military spending, and that continued um, through to the uh, war in Afghanistan, where military spending under the uh, under the Martin government and the Harper government increased. As soon as we stopped our deployment in Afghanistan, uh, the military was cut back again. And the Trudeau government has uh, made some investments in uh, defense uh, after they, they, they took office in, in 2015. But from the standpoint of a lot of us, it's still not where it should be uh, as far as the uh, the amount. And it's, I think, reflected in um, the, the fact that um, we don't have enough um, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, uh, that we have issues with capability, uh, we have issues with deployability uh, as well. So there's a, a number of issues that I think need to be addressed in a, in a very substantive way. Mm-hmm.
0: A number of issues, as you say, and, and according to this report, the, 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 the knock-on effect immediately has been that our allies apparently now uh, question Canada uh, as an ally, uh, whether or not it can step up and whether or not it could actually be reliable in security matters. How problematic is that assessment, if it's true?
2: Well, um, uh, first of all, I think you know, people have to understand the concept of collective security. And uh, you know, Canada was one of the original members of NATO when we signed the Washington Treaty back in 1949. And it is predicated on Article 5, which is an attack against one is an attack against all. So it's, it's very much a, a collective. And we rely on other uh, countries, for our security, and they rely on us for their security. And when Canada is not paying, or is not seen to be paying its its fair share, I think it does cause uh, some friction within the relationship. Having said that, you know we've we've been part of lots of NATO operations and and you know quite a few peacekeeping operations in the past. Uh, but it it doesn't contribute to harmonious relations within the alliance. And and uh, I think what it speaks to as well is. Is um, the need for Canada to be more conscious of the need for um, allied solidarity, that we stand together as an alliance in the face of potential, well, potential aggression from from China, actual aggression uh, in terms of Ukraine with, with Russia?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, recently uh, AUKUS was signed, the trilateral security agreement with the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, Canada not included in that security agreement. What does that say to you about the future if Canada does not more seriously uh, take its commitments when it comes to the military and and security?
2: Well, it's important to understand as well uh, what AUKUS is all about. And, and AUKUS is, uh, is really an initiative by the British, by the Americans, to assist the Australians in terms of the, uh, the construction of nuclear submarines. Now, it also contains uh, some other uh, provisions which relate to the sharing of information, uh, in, in terms of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, hypersonic and counter-hypersonic missile technology, uh, undersea warfare, electronic warfare, cyber warfare. There's a number of other uh, issues in, in the mix there that I think Canada should be part of. I mean, this is a, this is a, 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 an agreement that is focused on Indo-Pacific security, mm-hmm. and we are part of the Indo-Pacific scene. And I, I think in a larger
0: economy than Australia.
2: Uh, yeah, considerably, and uh, so I think I think we should be part of it, and I think you know from what I understand, the door remains open for Canada to participate, uh, but we have to make that move in, in order to uh, to join the group. But I, I do think it's also important to keep in mind that that, that Canada is part of what's referred to as the Five Eyes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that consists of the U.S. Great Britain, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, where there is significant, very, very significant intelligence sharing uh, beyond that which exists within NATO, for instance.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you, you said earlier that Canada needs to understand the, the idea of mat- multilateral efforts, uh, of partnership. When you say that, are you talking about Canadian politicians or Canadian citizens writ large?
2: Well, I, I think it's a combination of both, really. I think we've, in some respects, you know, we are protected by our geography. Um, you know, with the United States as, as a neighbor, you know, the most powerful military um, country in the world as our neighbor, there's a natural, probably a natural in, uh, inclination to take our security for granted. Um, but I, I, I do think that's counterproductive in, in the long term in terms of us being able to really uh, assume a greater role with full credibility uh, in terms of our alliance uh, relationships. Um, but I do think that there's a role there for the media to play in terms of educating Canadians about uh, um, about our security situation and security issues in general. Uh, I think there's a role for educational institutions as well. And politicians also have to be... Uh, have to have to take a bit more of an educational role in terms of saying, you know, security is important uh, for Canadians. International peace and security really is the foundation for economic prosperity and security, and I, I don't think that that point has been driven home enough in this country.
0: David Pratt, really appreciate your thoughts on this.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Did the Prime Minister cross the line by vacationing in Jamaica with family friends who are also wealthy donors to the Trudeau Foundation? Now, that's an issue that's been debated by MPs all week ever since details of the trip were uncovered by Radio Canada. Now, it has led to some very loud and personal arguments in the Commons with Conservatives raising issues of access and privilege and Liberals accusing the opposition of spreading misleading information. Take a look at what happened in the House on Wednesday.
2: Nobody is raising qualms with the Prime Minister having a vacation. I know it's his favourite thing to do. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I had a vacation at the same time. It was a Sunwing package and I did stay five hours waiting at the airport. But that being said, I paid for it myself. I paid for it myself. We're not asking for the Prime Minister to pay for the security. We're not even asking him to pay for his private jet. We're simply asking him to pay the same price any other family who stayed at that resort would pay so that he doesn't owe anybody anything. Will he pay back that $80,000?
0: The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, these are family friends. Uh, the, my father was godfather to one of their children. Uh, their father was godfather to one of my brothers. Mr. Speaker, these are family friends that we've had uh, for many, many decades, close to 50 years. Uh, and over those 50 years, I have been to that uh, vacation spot many, many times uh, with my family, with my father when he was still alive. Uh, but of course, Mr. Speaker, we worked with the Ethics Commissioner to make sure all rules were followed. Uh, and we followed Followed all the practices uh, in regards to prime ministerial travel, including, unfortunately, having security along with us, which is a requirement for all prime ministers of any party. Well, to talk about the issue, let's bring in Susan Smith right now. She's principal at Blue Sky Strategy Group. Kate Harrison is vice chair at Summa Strategies, and Kim Wright is principal and founder at Wright Strategies. Hello to the three of you. Hello. 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 Susan, I'll get you to start us off here. You know, even if this vacation was nothing more than, than a trip with friends. The decision, it does open the Prime Minister up to these allegations of uh, buying access or at the very least, being tone deaf uh, to the economic challenges that Canadians are facing. Has the Prime Minister hurt himself with another unforced error? I think the Prime
4: Minister has a family and uh, like many Canadians, he works very hard. Uh, it's unfortunate that where he goes on a family vacation is public fodder or opposition fodder, I think, for football stuff. Obviously, with the Prime Minister travels anywhere, uh, whether it's Toronto or to Manatic, uh, there's security that is involved. That's the nature of the beast as a Prime Minister of the country. And I think if you want people to step forward and serve in public service, they shouldn't have to spend their time in public service uh, tent camping, unless that's exactly what they want to do. If they don't want to camp in a tent, they don't have to camp in a tent. They, you know. The Prime Minister has to travel with security, that's what it is. I think uh, the opposition should be barking up other trees at this point. It's just boring. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Kate, what do you make of it? Because you know, we we did start this conversation off by playing a bit of the exchange from Pierre Palliev and the Prime Minister in the House uh, yesterday, and that's because by today, really Jamaica is no longer really being asked by the opposition, uh, Conservatives included. Is the issue not getting the traction the party wants? uh, or, Or is this still a legitimate issue?
5: I think because this has been a bit of a pattern of activity for, for the Prime Minister, this is not the first time that one of his vacations has come under scrutiny. Uh, you know, it, I'm not sure that it does much to necessarily show new voters that Conservatives have something to offer. It's good fodder for the base. You already think that Justin Trudeau runs in elitist circles and is a little bit out of touch when it comes to his vacation planning. This is another um, uh, arrow in the quiver as far as that, that line of attack is concerned. But I think the real issue here, Michael, of course, is timing uh, and the judgment that was applied in taking this vacation at a time when many Canadians are making alternative plans and arrangements. There probably is a middle ground between tent camping, uh, to Susan's reference, and a $9,000 a night luxury resort. So there, there is a middle ground there that could have been achieved, and had the Prime Minister applied a bit of foresight and been advised that maybe this was not the right time to do something like this, uh, I don't think the opposition would be as, uh, as perplexed about it as they are right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Kim, I'm wondering what you think, because as, as we heard from Susan, really the, the argument that we hear from the Prime Minister, from Liberals, is that this was a vacation with longtime family friends. It was cleared uh, by the Ethics Department. Was there really anything wrong with this vacation that the Prime Minister took, or, or is this more vulnerable because of the tie that's being made with the Trudeau Foundation?
1: I mean, the reality is, I'm not sure that the Prime Minister has taken a holiday that has not resulted in an ethics investigation. Whether we're talking about his trip to Nevis, or we're talking about going to the Aga Khan's private island, or any of the other myriad of other ones, including... God help us, the uh, trip to Tofino, the ill-fated trip to Tofino, where it was on the first of Truth and Reconciliation Days. So we can talk about whether or not he should go on holidays or not. The prime minister is entitled to in hol- a holiday. He is not, however, entitled to his entitlements, and that's the position we're starting to get into. You couple this with the new or now former new uh, ethics czar uh, who was herself going to be caught up inevitably uh, in potential questions about ethics and conflicts of interest. I mean, the prime minister has never seen a uh, conflict of interest. He hasn't jumped on. And, you know, we can poo-poo it away a bit, but again, it becomes a pattern. And the only people who are actually uh, bored about this are, you know, this poor staffers who are trying to arrange his holidays that doesn't include him breaking ethics rules. I think at some point he needs not only a travel agent, but a better ethics investigator. This is an unforced error that did not need to happen. And at some point, the prime minister will have realized that he has been the prime minister since 2015. And hold on, Susan. I I know you're going to jump in there and say he's entitled to all of these things, and it's true, he I didn't can use that a word, holiday, but at some point, he has got to learn that it doesn't always have to be with his fancy friends at very fancy places. And if he is going to have them, that's fine, but he's going to have to start ponying up for them,
0: okay, Susan. Well, quickly? I think
1: him,
4: I think the one danger is by there is an insinuation that there was ethics violations on this particular holiday, that's not the case. And so I think we have to be very oh. careful at the accusations. I think we have to be very careful at those things and making sure you stick to the fact that the facts are stuck to on this. Look, the it, fact it is, on every holiday Canadian, he has taken, a the average Canadian can afford. There's no I'm not saying he can't take family, fancy
1: that, holidays. I'm not saying he can't yeah, take fancy holidays, like, Susan. I, I can is, say, however, that politics is
0: something. I don't a our political
4: leaders need to take a poll about whether or not they can have a vacation with their family. I think that's unreasonable. Oh, I think you can have it un, on the vacation
0: Okay, go ahead. I
1: think everyone can have all the vacations that they want, but they also have to be realistic, especially somebody who's spent their entire life in politics and under the public spotlight to understand that there are sometimes there are some points in your life, especially when you've been the prime minister since 2015, that you should recognize that maybe going on fancy holidays and with people who may or may not put you under scrutiny, uh, in this climate is not something that he should do and certainly not something he should be surprised when he's called to account. At what point do we actually do do you get to call them to account without it being too much of being a partisan hack? Come on now, Suze. Uh,
0: I, I think, uh, Kate, you want to get in there as well.
5: Yeah, I just there's ethics, there's optics, and if you look at the latter, like that, that's what matters when it comes to re-election. And uh, people are craving uh, political leadership that is in touch with them, uh, that understands their concerns, um, and kind of reflects that I think in their own actions. So again, there there probably is a middle ground here between taking a vacation at all and doing what the prime minister chose to do. Uh, which is a very opulent vacation, again, at a time where people are struggling. And on the public opinion side of things, this is not a good look for a prime minister uh, that has had multiple iterations of similar challenges, optical problems in the past. He should have learned his lesson by now, given there's been four or five of these instances.
0: Okay, uh, I have three minutes, so that's one minute to each of you left in this conversation. I I really want to quickly talk about that Washington Post story on Canada's defence spending. The Prime Minister would not confirm whether or not he said that comment about the 2% commitment to NATO, but the very fact that this is being reported on, apparently in a leaked document from the Pentagon, is this embarrassing for Canada and for the Prime Minister? Uh, Susan, I'll get your thoughts first. You have one minute. I think leaked documents out of
1: the
4: Pentagon are an embarrassment. Uh, Leaked documents out of Canada are an embarrassment. And I think the prime minister is wise not to comment on the veracity uh, of something like that, whether it's true or not, then you're validating this kind of thing. There's no doubt that Canada's uh, NATO contributions have never, uh, it's been a long time since they hit the levels that the world wants them to hit. We have, we do our best. Uh, Could we spend more? Yes but it's not a new thing. I think for the government of Canada, this is not a country that um, likes billions and billions of dollars to go out the door on a regular basis. For defense spending, I think there are times and places where we are supportive of more. I would argue that this is the time and the place, but there's a capacity issue that we have to work up to.
0: Okay. Kate, you have a minute as well.
5: Yeah, it, I, it's not a good look, certainly. And I think that this particular government feels a lot of pressure uh, when international media starts uh, critiquing their their action and behaviors on this file overall. Um, yeah, it, I don't think it's taking anybody surprise, uh, by surprise that we're not going to hit the 2% spending target. Uh, but what is more concerning is that there's a pattern here of canada trying to be all things to all people on the world stage and that's probably why a number of allies are looking at us with a sense of disappointment uh that hasn't necessarily been the case in ukraine i think canada has punched above its weight in terms of supporting uh ukraine maybe this is more of a calms issue uh for the government they need to be a little bit more uh, prescriptive about where they're going to support maybe have a bit more of a targeted approach uh and then that will result in less hurt feelings around the table if uh, we overpromise and underdeliver, which it seems like maybe we are doing in Haiti and Latvia and some of the other nations that have been mentioned in that document.
0: Kim, mm-hmm. your reaction?
5: So, look,
1: I think that there are lots of things that the Prime Minister needs to be aware of, including leaked documents out of the Pentagon. But I also go back to what Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats have frequently said uh, on military spending, which is that we should be Uh, heavily engaged we should be part of you know making sure we're living up to our obligations both within canada and our own uh, domestic military as well as what is required of us around the world whether that is an arbitrary two percent number from nato or not i think what we really do need to get to the bottom of is what is the appropriate amount that we need to be spending? And maybe it's time we start busting out the credit card on uh, on military spending here in Canada, considering what Russia has often been pushing up against on Arctic sovereignty and certainly what we've seen China do, uh, whether it be weather balloons uh, influence on elections or in military increase and in pushing. So all of these things, we need to actually have a better uh, response overall On military spending. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is fundamentally where we need to get to if Canada wants to continue to be the respected uh, nation that we have a history of being.
0: Okay. Susan, Kate, Kim, thank you. Uh, You always make my Thursdays very interesting. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Take care. care.
4: Thanks. Bye.
0: Canada's goal to reach net-zero emissions by 2050 is well known, but a new report from Canada's Environment Commissioner says the federal government is not measuring its efforts well enough, making it difficult to know if the right tools are being used. What is known, Canada is lagging behind in some key priorities. Here's how the Environment and Climate Change Minister responded today. So we're improving every year, but we won't stop fighting climate change while we figure out reporting methodologies. We're moving full full steam ahead with an ambitious climate plan that will bolster significantly with historic investment in 2023, bringing our total investment into climate action over $200 billion. Well, to discuss the issue, we're now joined by Jerry DeMarco, Canada's Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development. Mr. DeMarco, good to see you face-to-face for the first time.
3: Good to see you, Michael.
0: Listen, I want to begin our discussion here with a comment that you made during the press conference. And you basically said that in all the time that Canada has committed to reducing greenhouse gases, we are the only G7 country to register increases rather than decreases. Can you give me some context to that? Just what number are we talking about when it comes to Canada's increases and compare that to numbers being posted by other G7 countries?
3: Right. So since Canada committed to first stabilizing and then decreasing greenhouse gas emissions in the early 90s, our emissions are up 14%, even though we've been trying to put them down. Compare that to even the United States are down slightly, and then several European countries like Germany or the UK, they're down in the 30s, even the 40%. So we went on the up escalator of emissions, while all the others went on the down escalator of emissions.
0: Now, what does that mean then? Because you know, Canada, like all countries, they do modeling before they introduce mm-hmm. programs. Is that modeling uh, insufficient? Are the programs not specific enough?
3: So there's been a litany of problems over 30 years. It's hard to summarize all of them in a short answer, but I would say modeling is a big problem, and that's come up not only in today's reports, but also last year's reports on hydrogen and so on. The measures themselves have not been sufficient, so some measures, they overestimate the benefits that they will be getting from them, and then when it comes to the deadline of the target year, say 2020, that recently passed, they implemented the measures, but the measures didn't accomplish what they actually set out to do. So there are, there are lots of different problems, but the, the bottom line is they've had several targets over the years and they've never met one.
0: Mm -hmm. And part of it too is, if if I may, because in your report, you note the fact that when you go to Environment and Climate Change Canada and you ask, for example, how each program has done or contributed to reducing greenhouse gases, they can't really talk to each program because they take more of a macro look. So how problematic is that?
3: Yeah, so what we're asking them to do in our recommendations is to parse out to the degree possible how each measure is contributing to the whole because all of their last plans have added up on paper. Uh, Yet, when you get to the deadline year of the target, they're nowhere close to the target. So something's amiss. We're making these recommendations so they can course correct during the implementation rather than just finding out at the end of the implementation what went wrong. This would help them if they implement the recommendations we've been making help them actually achieve a target for the first time, and that would be the 2030 target. That's the next one. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, as we talk about emission targets, you also note in the reports today the the tree planting program that was uh, committed to by the Liberal government in in the last campaign, 2 billion trees by 2030. You say the program is now behind. So what impact does that have on the government's goal of reaching net zero by 2050 and reducing emissions as well uh, by that year?
3: Yeah, So the projections for that program in terms of carbon storage were overestimates. So they're not going to really store any carbon in those two billion trees, even if they do succeed in planting them all by 2031. They're not going to have the storage uh, benefits until 2040, 2050, 2060, and so on, because it just takes so long for trees to grow, right? And uh, they're really only sequestering large amounts of carbons when they're when they're medium to large sized trees. So they they overestimated the contribution of that program to net emissions reductions. It's still worth doing the program, there's lots of benefits um, long-term in carbon sequestration. They're just not going to get the immediate return on investment by 2030. They'll get a little bit of return on investment by 2050, not as much as they were projecting, and then they'll get even more in the, in the uh, decades to follow, as long as the trees stay alive. That's another issue in our report, which is they do need to monitor them to make sure that it's not just a tree planting, but it's a retention of trees as well. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you also point to another problem, challenge, uh, and this has to do with species protection because I'm going to read the number here because you note the fact that of over 500 species identified as being at risk for nearly 30 years, they are still at risk today or uh, worse off mm-hmm. so you know when you talk about things like uh, greenhouse gas targets uh, when you talk about the tree planting program when you talk about species protection do you get discouraged at where we are or is there still hope because it seems like there are all these government promises and programs but based on what you said today they all fall short or we can't actually report an accurate number
3: yeah so it is discouraging and from one perspective from another perspective though, The attention to these issues, the public support for protecting nature, for protecting biodiversity, for addressing climate uh, climate change is greater than ever. So that's what gives me some uh, some hope. Uh, The younger generation gives me a lot of hope, the, the amount of Uh, ecological literacy or environmental literacy as we call it is is much greater now than when I was a kid for example. So there is some hope but the difficulty is governments often are focused on short-term deliverables and many of the environmental and sustainable development issues that we're facing have multi-generational impacts and returns on the the investments. So if you invest now in protecting or in reducing emissions, it may not have a a political payback immediately. So that's the difficulty. Governments are not great at addressing long-term problems. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it fair to say you think in broad strokes the government's in the right direction and it's a matter of fine-tuning, or is it greater than that?
3: So they, the commitments are in the right direction. So you asked me if I'd be discouraged, I'd be even more discouraged if they didn't even want to protect nature or want to address climate change. So we've got the commitments. Um, it's, it's discouraging the lack of progress. But at the end of one of our reports, we do talk about signs of hope in terms of climate change. Now that there are uh, stronger regulations in place, a Net Zero Accountability Act, which was not in place before, carbon pricing, and so on. These are things that should start to pay off. It's not a case of just uh, a plan that is on a wing and a prayer. These There are actual measures that should pay off. Whether they're enough to meet 40% reductions by 2030, we'll have to see. But I doubt we're going to see uh, emissions ever, ever as high as they were in 2005 again, for example.
0: Jerry DiMarco, really appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that is our program for this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow, but stay with us. L'Essentiel avec Esté Béjean is up next.